Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, we've got our usual format for you today. We do a news roundup at the beginning where we'll talk about T-Mobile's Digits launch. We'll talk about uh, some Apple uh, AI news this week, a couple of different pieces of news there. And then we'll talk about the launch of Amazon Go, um, which is these new grocery stores that Amazon's going to be rolling out where you just check in as you enter the store and then you don't actually have to check out again. Uh, so we'll talk about that in a little bit of detail. After the news roundup, we'll have our question of the week, and that question will be, how is streaming changing the music industry? So we're kind of riffing off some of the news this week from uh, both Apple Music and also YouTube about the scale of their music offerings. Uh, and then the third segment will be a discussion of the state of the hardware industry, and specifically a column written by Farhad Manju this week about, uh, well, he says the gadget apocalypse is upon us. And so really he's making a statement about how hard the hardware market is these days, especially for smaller startups. And uh, so we'll discuss that, whether we believe it or not. And then we'll wrap up with a weekly pick at the end from Aaron. Uh, so let's kick off with our news roundup. First off, this T-Mobile Digits launch. Uh, I had a, a press comment out about this that we'll direct you to from the website. But uh, simply put, T-Mobile's new Digits offering, and it's just a customer beta for now, is uh, the ability to take your phone number and uh, put it on every, any device that you want to so that you can receive calls and texts on another phone other than your main phone, on a tablet, on a PC or whatever. Uh, it also allows you to put multiple phone numbers on the same phone so that you can receive, say, work and personal calls or set up a specialized dating phone number or something like that for your phone. So it's interesting news from T-Mobile this morning. What was your take on this, Aaron? Well, it, it got me thinking that it, how... I'm surprised I hadn't occurred to me that the phone number is surviving remarkably well thus far. I mean, with the you know with 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 the internet age you know so deeply entrenched in our culture now, there's really not a need for a phone number per se, um, especially now that even the mobile character car carriers are all about data more than anything else. Um, it seems like there could be other unique identifiers, but phone numbers are just holding on. I don't know. I mean, that's a weird kind of meta observation to come away with from that, but uh, but I think it kind of drove it home. I, I do think it's a cool feature. Um, I I think it's especially cool to be able to get multiple phone numbers onto your mobile phone. Um, I could picture that being useful. I I think the problem, of course, with this is you know it all goes through T-Mobile, and so you kind of all in right with T-Mobile, whether it's a work number and a personal number or whatever, but. But it, but I think it's a cool concept and a and a trend I could see taking off elsewhere. Yeah, no, it's an interesting idea. It's, it's the way T-Mobile describes it. It's going to be very hard for anybody to copy anytime soon because they've done a lot of work in their network over the last several years to enable this. And so it's if it does take off, it's going to be very hard for the other carriers to respond quickly to this. Um, I had a couple of thoughts about it. One one was um, just that you know they're reinventing the phone number just when phone numbers kind of become irrelevant. I mean, this is sort of the flip side of what you were talking about, but. Um, you know, yes, they've stuck around for phones, but many of the things we use phones for, we now use other identifiers. So it might be your iCloud account if you use iMessage and FaceTime and so on. Um, it might be your WhatsApp account. It might be that you use your phone number as a way into some of those services, but they then become device independent after you've signed up for them. So, um, you know, there's Skype and WhatsApp and everything else out there that basically allows you to do much the same thing as your phone number did in the past, but it uses other identifiers. And so... Um, you know, from that perspective, it feels like this would have been really useful five, ten years ago. It's less so today. Um, it's also interesting. It doesn't really work properly on iPhones yet, um, 
or on Macs with Safari. You need a Firefox or, or Google Chrome for it to work on, on a Mac. So there are some ways in which Apple customers are going to be left out in the cold here a little bit. Probably doesn't matter that much because they have iMessage and FaceTime and so on to accomplish a lot of this stuff already. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting thing. The, the one thing that hasn't been announced yet is pricing. So it's going to be free during the beta, but there will be a charge after that. And it really depends a lot on what that charge is as to how popular this is going to be, I think. Um, but certainly an interesting thing to watch and, and you know, uh, sort of slightly out of left field sort of approach from a wireless carrier. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the phone number still has impressive staying power as a unique identifier for people. I mean, even now, people still hate changing their phone number. And the apps that you talked about, like WhatsApp, for example, and also iMessage, you know, rely on the phone number, not exclusively with iMessage, um, but they rely on the phone number to be the unique identifier that ties you into the service. Um, and so having multiples of these would almost be like having multiple email addresses. <clears throat> you know, like most people don't have multiple phone numbers because it requires multiple phones. But maybe there'd be more of that if you could get multiple phone numbers to a single phone. Right. Yeah. No, it'll be interesting to see how it pans out for sure. Um, so the second news roundup topic is Apple and AI. And two news items that kind of came out of the same event this week. Um, there was a NIPS conference uh, that Apple was attending this week. And uh, the director of AI research at Apple is a guy called Russ... I'm going to butcher his name now, Salakuddinov. Um, he, he runs AI research at Apple now, and uh, he made this announcement about the fact that Apple AI people can now start publishing their research, which is important because AI is one of those fields that's traditionally been sort of an academic field where you get a name for yourself by publishing the research that you're working on. And so the problem has been you go to Apple, you basically have to stop publishing, and so the whole sort of public profile disappears at that point. And that's been true for some other fields, but it's especially true in a field like this that has been sort of dominated by research published in the sort of usual journals and things like that. The other piece of AI news was that from the same event, there was a presentation given, and Quartz, the news website Quartz, got hold of uh, photographs of the slides from that event, and they certainly show several uh, use cases that involve cars. So there's a LiDAR one and another one as well. And so it's kind of interesting in terms of what Apple's working on and what they're applying AI and machine learning to. So what was your take on all this, Aaron? I would love to know more about why publishing is so essential in that industry that it would actually turn people away from Apple, like people doing the research in this space. Um, I only say that because there are a lot of other fields where it's not so much of a problem. I mean, if you're if you're a cutting-edge engineer, um, you know, working in in speakers or working in uh, semiconductors or any number of other fields, it doesn't seem like there's that same anxiety, right, that part of what you do is sharing your knowledge with the rest of the community. But it seems to be a really big deal in AI, which I think is great. It, it certainly is going to make life better for the rest of us who don't do the research, right, because it means that the more knowledge is shared, the, the better it, you know, all these eventual AI products will become. But I'm just curious about why that is such a dominant part of the culture there. Because it definitely seems like a big deal. And there's been other, there have been other news items uh, uh, of people speculating about Apple's ability to hire with that restriction. And it sounds like it was something that the people in Apple that really favored the publication uh, freedom, it sounds like it was something that they were really fighting for. Mm -hmm. uh, it'd be, yeah, so it'd be fascinating to know all that. Um, 
you know, the as far as the application of this stuff, it definitely it doesn't surprise me at all that they that they are angling this for a lot of different applications. I, I think Apple has done that with core technologies from the beginning. It was certainly the case with touch. Um, and uh, I mean, the touch bar is an example of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how they, they look at core technologies and then figure out where to put them to use. And AI is definitely going to fit into that category. Yeah, no, absolutely agreed. Um, and then, then our third news roundup topic is Amazon Go. And if you missed this news this week, this is kind of classic end of year PR stunt from Amazon to some extent, which is they announced uh, they're going to have grocery stores that you go into, you kind of check in, much like going through a subway turnstile or something like that. You, you pull open your, an app and scan a barcode. Uh, as you walk into the store and that then identifies you as the customer and then as you walk around the store and pick items off the shelf and put them in your bag or whatever um, it basically registers that you've got that item and unless you put it back will ultimately charge you for it as you walk out the door and so eliminates the checkout line eliminates lines altogether presumably um, could dramatically cut down on in-store stuff because you basically just need to stock the shelves and make the fresh things like sandwiches and so on that they're going to be selling. Um, feels like sort of a, a typical Amazon approach to something. It's worth noting it doesn't exist yet for ordinary customers. It's currently just being used by Amazon employees at one location in Seattle. The plan is to actually open that store to customers early next year sometime, um, but it will just be one 1,800-square-foot store, so it's worth putting it all in context. But what did you make of this, Aaron? Uh, two thoughts. One, it would be really interesting to see what Amazon does with this, whether or not they go strictly their sort of own branded brick-and-mortar kind of retail outlets, which is a direction they've been heading and hinting at for a while now, or if this becomes a technology that they then that they would rather license out to make available to, you know, a, you know big grocery chains or mom-and-pop grocery chains or, or mom-and-pop grocery stores or any other or convenience stores or any of those sorts of things. The other thought is, um, you know, we can add a whole other employment category to the list of jobs being threatened by automation. Right. <laughs> I mean, manufacturing has taken the biggest hit in, in the past couple of decades with automation. I mean, it, you know, there's with all the talk during the election cycle of, of jobs going overseas, manufacturing jobs going overseas, there's a huge chunk of these jobs that have actually been lost to automation instead of overseas workers. Um, you know, drivers are next on the list. You know, people who drive professionally are facing the the, the looming threat of self-driving vehicles. I think for commercial driving, like uh, like transport fleets, that's especially. Um, I think it's going to be especially disruptive there because there's because I mean, really, you're talking about mostly highway miles. Well, now if you add you know, retail and the this, this service sector and retail, that's a whole other line of uh, line of jobs that are now being threatened. I mean, there are a lot of people who make make their living working at a cash register. And I'm, I'm not trying to be like, like a Luddite about this or doom and gloom, but there's a reality there ahead of a lot of jobs kind of going away with automation. The truth of it is I would love that sort of an experience at a store. Mm-hmm. I would love to yeah. be able to just, you know, load up some bags that I bring with me and then walk out and that's it. Right. And I get right. and and the charge automatically happens. Yeah. And I think that's that's what makes the video that Amazon released so compelling, is it is everybody wants that, right? So we'd love for that to work. If it really does work as advertised and if it doesn't accidentally charge you for something because you pulled it off the shelf and put it back in the wrong spot or 
it thought that you grabbed something when in fact it was the person next right. to you grabbing something. I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which this could go wrong. There were some funny tweets about people crashing their self-driving cars into an Amazon Go store and being charged for everything in the store. You know, So <laughs> there are all kinds of interesting uh, possibilities here. But uh, no, it seems compelling. But as I said at the beginning, it's worth putting in context. It's one 1,800-square-foot store uh, in Seattle. You know, There are 38,000 grocery stores in the U.S., um, you know, the average size of the store is something like 40,000 square feet. So, you know, this is a very small single store in a market that's dominated by lots and lots of large ones. And uh, I think there are three and a half million people employed in grocery stores. They're not obviously all uh, checkout people. A lot of them would be stocking shelves and warehousing and that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, it's a very big industry that can potentially be disrupted if this really does take off in a big way. So, again, an interesting one to watch, I think. Right. All right, well, let's move on to our question of the week. And as I said at the beginning, the question this week is, how is streaming changing the music industry? And this is in the context of some news, not just this week, but really on an ongoing basis about uh, streaming music and how that's evolving and how it's changing the industry. So we really wanted to do something of a deeper dive into that this week. So I've been kind of pulling together the research here. It's a subject that I follow quite closely. Um, and so I'll be answering the questions while Aaron will be asking them. And so the, the first question we need to ask as we talk about the music industry is how do you know the stuff you're going to be telling us about, Yeah, And I think that the, it's the, there, there are presumably industry sources here that you're relying on. I'm sure that's the case. But what are they and, 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 and what should we know about those? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there are a couple of industry sources and then there are various others as well. So on a global basis, there is the IFPI, which is the International Federation of the Phonographic Industry, which is a wonderfully anachronistic name for the Recording Industry Association globally. But the IFPI uh, gathers and then publishes data every year from its uh, member labels and so on. And so there's some very good statistics in that sense on the global music market and then separately from that, there is the U.S. Recording Industry Association, so the RIAA, uh, which does the same thing on, on a U.S.-only basis. And so there are those two industry groups, and there are others around the world in smaller countries as well, but I'm, I'm going to focus on those two, uh, that publish sort of industry-level data, which is very useful for seeing these trends play out over time. And then beyond that, you have uh, the individual record labels. So the big three are uh, the Warner Music Group, Universal Music, and then Sony Music. Uh, they all report publicly uh, their financials and they all, all provide some information about the composition of those financials as well. So that's handy. Uh, and they, bet between them, account for a large chunk of the total recording industry uh, around the world. And then beyond that, there's Spotify. Now, Spotify doesn't isn't public to traders yet, um, but it does file some financials with uh, Swedish regulators every year that always make their way out into the public somehow. So um, it's not like a full sort of 10K annual report or anything like that that we get to pour over. But there's usually quite a lot of information in there which you can sort of digest. And so I've uh, had a good dig through those numbers over the past few months. Um, and so we have those numbers up on an annual basis at least. Uh, and then we have various other bits and pieces that get released. So we have subscriber numbers from Spotify and Apple Music. Uh, YouTube will occasionally make statements about uh, how much money it's paid out to labels and so on as well, and they did that this week. So those are some of the sources that I'll be uh, relying on as we go through today. So tell us about the size of the music industry generally, because this is something that has actually fluctuated quite a bit in the last decade, and decade and a half or so, obviously disrupted primarily by the internet and everything that that brought. So, so how big is the industry and what should we know about its size? Yeah, so the uh, total market globally is about $15 billion in a annually uh, in revenue. So 
Uh, it's been at about that scale, so between about $14 and $15 billion since 2010, uh, but that's a long way down from the peak. So back in 2000, the annual revenue for the music industry was $37 billion. So it's a tiny fraction today of what it was at its peak. That peak obviously was driven by a number of things. Among other things, it was driven by uh, adoption of CDs, which drove a whole new buying cycle for music that people already owned. And of course, the subsequent buying cycle, which we'll talk about in a minute, of digital didn't drive that because you basically took your CDs, you pulled the music off them into digital format and didn't have to rebuy them. And so uh, we saw this sort of buying cycle driven by CDs, this massive expansion in global music consumption as the economy grew around the world and so on. But the point is, it's about $15 billion now. And uh, to put that in context, uh, in the technology industry, it's roughly halfway between the size of Apple's other products category and its iPad uh, revenue line on an annual basis. Or to go outside the tech industry, it's the size of uh, companies like uh, Monsanto or Dish Network or Marriott or Office Depot or Nordstrom department stores. So that's roughly the size. If you look at the US music industry, it's just under half of the total globally. Uh, so it's about $7 billion a year. And again, to kind of compare that to something that might make a bit more sense, uh, Dick's Sporting Goods or Avon products or even Netflix are about that sort of ballpark. So that's roughly the size that we're talking about. Well, that's interesting. So um, so break it into components, though, because that's all music that's bought and sold. And, and people, I mean, there are even people still buying CDs today. So help us know where you know, which different uh, music sources are, are leading with how much revenue? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And, and, you know, it's very easy for us to think, oh, pe some people somewhere are still buying CDs. But the reality is that many people in many places are still buying a lot of CDs. Um, so the main sort of division that I'll talk about here is the physical versus digital. Um, and obviously digital started back in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s with some of the... Um, uh, rip-off music streaming services, so Napster and all the rest of them, where people would uh, rip their music and then share it online illegally uh, with others. And, and that was a big part of the original digital market. And then things like iTunes came along, and so digital downloads uh, that were paid for and legitimate became uh, a major chunk of digital consumption and certainly the entirety of uh, revenue from digital music uh, at that time. And so uh, there is that sort of digital physical split that's the main one that I'll talk about. And if you look on a global basis, the two didn't actually hit parity until 2014. So just a year before last was when uh, the split between those two by revenue was pretty much equal. So physical still half of the total. And then in 2015, globally, um, the split was about 54 to 46. So it's still pretty evenly split on a global basis. And a big part of that is that markets like Japan and Germany are still dominated to an amazing extent by physical purchases. Uh, and it's for different reasons. In Germany, it's largely it's a very cash economy. And so digital purchases in general are lower there than they are in most developed economies. In Japan, it's a cultural thing. There's a huge thing around the physical products and lots of interesting marketing and stuff that goes on around physical CDs and so on still in Japan. So uh, there are sort of elements like that that skew things. So if you look at the US, that tipping point between physical and digital happened a lot earlier. It happened in 2011. Uh, and digital now outweighs physical by, it was 80-20 in the first half of this year. So um, it's massively dominated by digital at this point in the US, but it would be wrong to assume that those same kind of patterns exist elsewhere. There is a small other component of revenue too uh, that's recorded by the industry associations. So they don't include um, things like concerts and so on, which tend to be not music revenue as such, they're about um, events. And so that doesn't get captured in any of these numbers. But there is this category that only exists outside the US called performance rights, which is 
if you're a, a grocery store or someone that wants to play uh, mood music or whatever to the people that come into your store, uh, you have to pay for that. Um, so there are performance rights associations that, that manage the royalty rates for that kind of thing. And that's actually a really big chunk of music, um, and so or money anyway. So it's a couple of billion dollars annually from that. So there's the physical and digital, and then outside the U.S., where this regime applies in pretty much every other country, uh, there's another couple of billion dollars that comes from that performance rights. In the U.S., that doesn't exist. That's not the model here, and so uh, th that revenue stream doesn't exist here. And then there's very small chunks from things like synchronization, so rights for putting music against your um, your TV show or your movie or whatever. Uh, there's things like uh, music ringtones and things like that. It used to be a big deal. It's absolutely tiny today, but it still exists. So there's all sorts of little tiny categories as well, but they're by far the two biggest categories are the sort of physical music uh, purchases and then digital downloads and streaming. So talk about streaming then. I had, by the way, I had no idea physical still had such a large share of music. That's really interesting. But, but streaming has been growing, especially this year. So, so tell us, and it's, but it fits into the digital category. So help us understand better how streaming is going. Yeah, so you know, for the last few years, it's been about digital versus physical, and the big story was when is digital finally going to eclipse physical? And as I say, on a global basis, that happened in 2014. But the, the next big trend is really streaming versus downloads within that digital category. And so um, there are two flavors of streaming that are worth talking about and separating here because they behave very differently. There is ad-supported streaming, and then there's paid streaming. And uh, as I say, they're very different. Um, and so streaming as an activity is totally dominated by ad-supporting streaming. So if you look at the total number of users and so on, um, the IFPA, sorry, IFPI estimated that there were about 900 million people streaming ad-supported music in 2015. So 900 million, almost a billion. Uh, only 68 million paid streaming users. So well under 10%. Uh, the number of paid versus uh, ad-supported streaming users. And when I say ad-supported, a huge chunk of that is things like YouTube, but there's also Pandora, there is the Spotify free tier, uh, and a whole range of other music services around the world um, that offer ad-supported streaming. So for free, and basically the money gets made through advertising. Um, the uh, the financial picture, though, is very different. So even though there's sort of a, this 11, 12 to 1 ratio between the two from a user perspective, the financial re relationship is extremely different. So the IFPI uh, says that uh, subscription streaming, so paid streaming, generated $2 billion in revenue uh, in 2015. And ad-supported streaming generated just $634 million in revenue. So you have over 10 times the users, but only a third of the revenue coming from ad-supported streaming. Uh, so subscriptions generated three times the revenue, but it had less than 10% of the users. Uh, if you look at it another way, on a global basis, uh, paid subscribers generate around $37 per year in revenue each, uh, and ad-supported streamers generate under a dollar a year. Uh, and the numbers are a bit imprecise on a global basis. But if you look in the U.S. specifically, it's about $113 a year from paid subscribers and $0.40 cents per ad-supported streaming user. Um, and if you look at Spotify specifically, 90% of their revenue comes from subscriptions, but only a third of their subscribers were paid in 2015. So there are these two flavors of streaming. And um, as I say, from a usage perspective, ad-supported streaming totally dominates, uh, but it generates very little revenue. And that's been the source of some of the sort of conflicts between uh, the music industry and YouTube in particular, since YouTube dominates that ad-supported category the music industry saying that YouTube doesn't do enough to prevent unlicensed use of their music online. 
uh, and that they don't pay out enough when when things are licensed and when there is a, a proper relationship set up. And so YouTube came out with this billion dollar number this week that's basically a billion dollars paid out to, and importantly this is labels, not artists, uh, but paid out a billion dollars over the past 12 months. And in, in the summer they said it was $3 billion altogether over all time. Um, so there's a fairly significant amount being paid out there, but you know, across almost a billion dollars a year, that's not very much, or at least so says the music industry. So that's sort of a big conflict that's happening there. Um, but the point is there are these two flavors and they behave very differently and uh, ad-supported streaming is, has, up until the end of 2015, uh, was much bigger in terms of user numbers but much smaller in terms of revenue. Uh, you know, subscriber-based um, streaming it kind of feels like it had a slow start, right? I mean, it took Spotify a, a while to see any, mm -hmm. any noticeable growth. Apple Music, when it launched, seemed to not be taking off quite as quickly as a lot of people expected. But, but 2016 feels like it's been a relatively big year for streaming. So kind of bring us up to date because a lot of the numbers you gave us were 2015. So tell us what's been going on this year for paid streaming especially. Yeah, and so at the end of last year, um, Spotify had 28 million paid subscribers. Apple Music reported 10 million sometime in January, so they were probably just under 10 million at the end of the year. Um, we've gone a long way from there. So Apple just announced uh, 20 million paid subscribers, I think, today or yesterday. Um, Spotify announced 40 million, but I think that was back in September, so they're probably in the high 40s by now. So, you know, Spotify's gone from 28 to maybe 46, 48, something like that, over the last uh, 11 months or so. Apple's gone from 10 million to 12 million, so they've doubled their base. Um, you've got other services out there too. So, Tidal had uh, 4.2 million subscribers in the summer. Uh, the last I checked, Deezer, which is popular everywhere except for in the US, uh, had 6 million paid subscribers. Rhapsody had 4 million. Um, Pandora has a few million as well. Uh, and there's lots of others out there in different countries too. So I'd guess that we're probably at about 100 million paid subscribers at this point, whereas the IFPI said there were about 68 million at the end of last year. So the numbers are growing rapidly there. And what's interesting is if you look at the financials for the music labels, they've been going through this decline, 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 driven first by downloads versus physical, uh, and then driven more recently by the fact that ad-supported streaming was so popular and was basically cannibalizing that download revenue stream. What's happening now is the paid streaming is starting to push their revenues back up again. Uh, and so paid streaming is now getting to the point that the revenues uh, and the growth that comes from that revenue is offsetting the declines in downloads. And so that's a big milestone. And I'd say, you know, in today's world, it's at least a significant a milestone as when um, physical was finally eclipsed by digital, is that streaming is now generating enough revenue to offset the decline in, you know, iTunes and other download revenue from the past. So that's quite a big deal. And so, um, you know, there are probably a billion ad-supported streamers at this point, probably about 100 million uh, paid streamers, but those 100 million paid streamers are really generating a lot of revenue. Um, Having said that, I saw some overblown numbers over the last couple of days as these new numbers came out from Apple. So some people just saying, oh, well, you just take the number of paid subscribers and you multiply it by 10 and you have your number. Uh, that's a huge oversimplification. It's probably way out in terms of revenue. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that the rate for these services isn't the same in every country. And so in India, for example, it's $3, not $10 per month. Um, and so you need to take that into account. The other thing is that there are a lot of discounted subscriptions as well. So both Apple and Spotify offer student subscriptions at roughly half the price. 
Um, they also, um, Spotify has a number of relationships with wireless carriers where uh, subscribers don't actually pay either anything or they pay a discounted rate and the wireless carrier makes up some of the difference and pays Spotify some smaller rate for the subscription. So it, it's wrong to assume it's, it's as flat $10 for every subscriber. It's probably somewhere below that. Apple does do family subscriptions and Spotify does the same at $15. Uh, and so, you know, some of these may actually skew a bit higher than $10, but I think on balance, we're probably talking about somewhere in the mid to high single digits and not $10 per user on average. So these $7 billion numbers that I saw bouncing around over the last couple of days are probably overblown because bear in mind, that's the size of the entire U.S. music market annually. So um, they're probably rather high. It's probably closer to four or five from uh, streaming at this point and, and maybe even lower than that still. So that's probably worth putting in context a little bit. But that's kind of where we are uh, as of right now coming into the end of 2016. So, uh, I, I mean, this is an, an exciting year of growth that way for paid streaming, but it seems like there are a lot of still very big changes ahead. I mean, Spotify hasn't actually yet made a profit off of its paid streamers. Um, Pandora just this week announced a new paid streaming service, one that they had promised, but now the details are out. Um, you know, and Apple Music has grown pretty quickly just in the last few months, which you mentioned. So, so I mean, what does the next year or so bring in streaming? I mean, I, I'm asking you to predict a little bit now. What, what do you think is ahead? Yeah, so there's, there's a few things. I think one is that you will see the industry continuing to favor paid streaming over ad-supported streaming. And I mentioned this conflict with YouTube. You know, YouTube dominates ad-supported streaming but pays out at very low rates. And the industry benefits from that. They do make money. That billion dollars did go to labels. You know, nobody's actually denying that. Um, but, you know, that went to labels and not to artists. And the labels take their cut. And by the time it gets to artists, it's a much smaller number. Um, and the labels see what's happening with paid streaming and they say, we want more of that, please, because that's making a lot more money for us. And so you'll see that dynamic continue to shift in interesting ways. Uh, you know, Apple Music's done a lot with exclusives uh, and Spotify's kind of said they don't like exclusives, partly because I think they haven't been getting them, but uh, in part at least because you know, ultimately everybody's best served by having all the music. But I think what you may start to see is that certain uh, albums and singles and things start to go paid only and then only later or if or maybe never make it to the uh, ad supported streaming services so i think you'll see the industry start to try to push uh, customers towards the paid streaming model and provide some incentives for them to move in that direction uh, having said that they're not going to kill off ad supported streaming entirely and, and back in episode 45 i think it was i interviewed ryan wright who's a friend of mine who works for um, a music service called Cobalt, and they basically manage a lot of the clearing of uh, fees between these various streaming services and uh, the artists. And he was saying, you know, Spotify's ad-supported streaming service is the reason why they have so many paid subscribers, because it basically acts as a funnel. Uh, so it's a, a sales funnel, if you like, for paid subscribers. And it's an interesting thing about Apple Music is it doesn't have that funnel. Basically, the iPhone is the funnel for Apple Music. Um, you know, these ad-supported streaming services get people into music, they get people hooked, and then they want more, and they don't want to watch the ads or listen to the ads, and so they end up paying for paid streaming. And so the industry has to be very careful about how it manages that transition, but I do think you will see them push people towards paid streaming because they make a lot more money that way. And as that continues to grow, that's actually going to be really good, and it's going to drive the first growth that we've seen uh, the first meaningful growth that we've seen in the, in the music industry globally for some years now. And we saw a little bit of that in 2015 in the first half of this year. But I think that growth will come back, which will be good. 
Um, I think you know you'll still see this very dramatic ratio between total number of ad-supported streaming users and paid streaming users. It's always going to be a minority that actually pays, but that's actually been the case for many years now. So not everybody buys music, and uh, not everybody will stream music either in a paid way. A lot of people will simply enjoy listening to what they can on the radio or through ad-supported streaming services and so on. Um, the big question is kind of how that works out for artists. If you're a big artist, you probably do fine. You make plenty of money either way. But if you're a smaller artist, um, you know, this world may well be tough because you don't get paid explicitly for your music. You just get paid your share of what people listen to from those uh, subscription and ad revenues. And so uh, that can mean if you're the small artist that people listen to once or twice a week versus the Taylor Swift or whatever that people listen to on loop nonstop, uh, you're going to get a much smaller payout, which is very different from how it might have worked in the past when you had real fans. And so um, this is the interesting thing about the industry, and it's, it's unresolved at this point. And I think that's going to be one of the most interesting things to keep watching is even though the music labels do better, and how do the artists make out, and especially smaller artists, and do they have to rely more heavily, for example, on concerts and merchandise and other revenue streams that sit outside the sort of formal music industry in order to make ends meet uh, and you know how does that affect the sort of business of being an artist going forward well that was really interesting i you know we've talked about this before but uh, we tried apple music and my family when it came out a year and a half ago and and uh, i liked it fine my wife wasn't in love with it so we let our subscription we canceled after the free trial and then started it up again back in April and my wife fell in love with it for some reason even though she didn't make much use of it the first time around. But it's interesting to think that the, that the year to come isn't going to just be a story about growth, that there are a lot of issues still to be worked out. So thanks for, thanks for giving us that perspective. Yeah, thanks for the questions. Uh, and as usual, we'll, we'll link to a bunch of stuff on the website. If you want to go there, we'll link to some of the sources that I cited and so on as well. So you can go there and check that out if you're interested in more on this. And again, in episode 45, we spent the whole episode talking about this with somebody who works in the industry, so that may be worth checking out too. Let's move on to our third segment. Um, this is our final segment here, and uh, we're talking about the state of the hardware industry, the consumer technology hardware industry specifically. And again, this is sort of prompted by a piece that Farhad Manju wrote for the New York Times, uh, talking about an apocalypse in the gadget market. And he and I spoke about this on... I guess it was Tuesday, as he was preparing to write this piece. And we had an interesting conversation. I thought it would be interesting to kind of have some of that conversation here between the two of us as well. Um, because Farhad raises a number of very interesting points in his article about how hard it is now, especially for a startup, to break into the industry, to be successful in the industry. And he cites examples like Fitbit and GoPro, which we've talked about quite a bit here on the podcast, uh, and how they've struggled to sort of make ends meet. He talks about Pebble, which is just being acquired by Fitbit, having largely sort of failed to make a business uh, of what it's doing. He cites others like Jawbone and others as well. Um, and so there's really this question about, you know, is it still possible to be successful in the hardware market if you're not one of the big established names? And, and uh, I think that the answer to that is far from straightforward. But uh, Aaron, kind of let's get some thoughts from you to start off. Well, I, I, I will say that I don't think hardware is as difficult as he made it sound in the article. I, I mean, it's definitely harder than, than software, That's, but that's, I think, pretty obvious. The reality is I think hardware is easier than it's ever been before. Just last Friday, we had a, a recently graduated MBA from our program here who has now launched a, a hardware startup and 
it's a geolocation thing, and they've got to do their own hardware for the product. It, it, it's 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 a way to help uh, parents keep keep have a sense of where their kids are without uh, having to rely on a smartphone. And um, you know, it's interesting because really, it, there there is a specialized expertise there. You have to have somebody who knows and and, and has relationships and. In, in manufacturing in China, but once you get those key relationships, the reality is it, making hardware is easier, I think, than it's ever been before, not harder, especially making it at scale. And so that's so that's that's where I kind of disagree with the way the article positions it, because yeah, it's harder than software, but it's easier than it's ever been before to make to make a new hardware gadget. Yeah, and that was one of the things I think that was one of the things he quoted me as saying, in fact, in the article was um, that. Uh, you know, the Shenzhen ecosystem actually makes it easier than ever before to make stuff um, because you've got all these components you can just buy from very cheap suppliers out in China. The problem is everybody else can buy from those same people too. Uh, right. So it isn't that making the hardware is tough. It's, it's perhaps that making a business out of that hardware is tough. And so I think the best opportunities are those that marry hardware with some kind of service that's more specialized and differentiated. And so whether it's keeping track of your kids like you were just talking about or whether it's you know, adding some really clever software to it so that it becomes unique because of the software rather than the hardware itself, you have to find a way to differentiate. And, you know, this is, you know, Apple may be a hardware company in that that's the product that it sells, but really the product it's selling is hardware, software, and services tightly integrated together. And as we've talked about before, Microsoft's Surface Line, Google's Pixel, and the rest of its hardware stuff, and many other companies' hardware products are increasingly trying to copy that model because it's only when you have differentiated software and services paired with your hardware that you can really stand out in the market, you can charge a premium, and you can hopefully sort of win market share and then defend that position going forward. And uh, that's the tough thing. If you're using these Chinese components and you're just trying to be the sort of lowest cost provider of whatever product it is you're providing, with no real differentiation, that's a really hard business to sustain. And the only way you can do it is by constantly churning out new stuff. So, you know, today it's Bluetooth headphones. Tomorrow it might be, you know, wearables. The day after it might be home automation gear. Um, you know, you have to keep figuring out where the demand is and where people aren't quite meeting that demand yet at the cheapest possible cost level and moving into that market. And, you know, CES for the last several years has been just the story of that playing out over and over again with new hardware categories and that the sort of Chinese chunk of the show floor has just been growing and growing and it's all these undifferentiated entrants in these different categories and every year it's a different category but uh, just this very rapid uh, evolution and uh, cycling through different categories there so uh, it, that's that's one of the more interesting aspects of this for me. Well and that having a strong brand isn't going to protect you um, where in the past it might have uh, you know, I, I think GoPro has as strong of a brand as any, as any player in its particular market could have, right? I mean, th it's almost, uh, it's almost a commoditized name, right? Because I think people would, if you say a GoPro camera, it may not even actually be a GoPro one, but you get the sense of, oh, it's this mobile camera that's meant for, you know, the 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 extreme sport kind of lifestyle, right? But it may not even be a GoPro that you're that you're wearing. Um, but it definitely, their brand defines the category. And yet, uh, I thought uh, Manju did a good job of articulating how that makes it so hard uh, because of the commoditization. You know, it, it's easy to forget this, but when Apple came out with the iPhone and then Android sales started picking up, there, was, there, were, there were a lot of people saying that the iPhone would be commoditized someday and smartphones would be a commodity. 
ignoring essentially what you were describing earlier, which is that there are ways to differentiate, to add value, um, two, two things related to that. One is that, uh, you know, when it comes to smartphone manufacturing, Apple has been able to stay ahead in terms of its hardware quality because they've been able to do things based on their scale and their manufacturing expertise that is not easily mimicked. And a small startup is never going to be able to pull that off, not to the scale that Apple does it. But then the second thing is that Apple turned the iPhone into a platform. And, and if your hardware is also a, a platform for all kinds of other activities, and, and whether it's apps or, or you know, other gadgets that plug in or uh, you know, any number of other things that the iPhone does as a platform or, for that matter, you know, an Android phone, um, having that power of a platform definitely protects your hardware interests. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the App Store and everything else that Apple's built around it certainly helps with that as well. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, the the other challenge here, and you kind of alluded to this just now, is that sometimes people see all hardware companies as the same, and they're not. I mean, for the reasons I was talking about earlier, for the fact that, you know, some of them are more differentiated than others uh, and have sort of built a more defensible position. The challenge is sometimes that all hardware companies get valued the same by the financial community, and this has been one of the challenges for Apple is that, that the financial community never quite seems to believe that Apple's position is defensible, that it is somewhat immune from low-end disruption and so on, uh, even as kind of the evidence keeps contradicting that worldview. And so this is one of the challenges, too, is that all hardware gets lumped into the same bucket, even though there's really quite a wide range of hardware there. Um, one of the most interesting things that we discussed as well when, when Farhad and I talked on the phone was, you know, where will the next big brand in consumer technology come from? Can there ever be another big brand? You know, uh, we talked a few weeks ago about Le Eco, that's a new company trying to break into this, spending lots of money on various things. Um, you know, they haven't really succeeded just yet. Maybe they still will. But, you know, the question is kind of where do these come from? Um, you know, do and how do you succeed today? Do you break into a category where there isn't an established leader? and then kind of spread out from there. Do you have to, at this point, be a very broad-based company that competes across a lot of different hardware categories? You know, there's some interesting questions there about where, if, if from anywhere, uh, the next big consumer technology hardware brand might come from. You know, I think part of what's muddying the waters in this right now is the idea that everything can be smart, you know, because there's a lot of people making stuff we've been buying for decades, if not centuries, like mattresses, right? Or <laughs> like, any, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to think of really mundane things that we buy. And if you look at a lot of the hardware startups that are out there now, um, they're trying to essentially make those things smart. And it's a weird, it's a weird article to write if you think about it, to say that gadgets are dead because he's writing in the thick of the Internet of Things craze, where it seems like every every other week there's some you know, there's something that comes across TechCrunch or, or The Verge or Engadget that's, you know, talking about this amazing new Internet of Things smart device that uh, is going to change the way we, we interact with our bird feeder, right, <laughs> or whatever it yeah. is. I mean, I, I have no doubt we could find a smart bird feeder if we spent, you know, two minutes Googling it. Um, it's, it you know, the problem is there's so much froth in that. And you just look at that industry and you yeah. just see so much future demise, right? Immediate demise. <laughs> yeah. It's hard It's hard to disagree with Farhad, but it's weird because at the same time, there's, there's a lot of investor capital flowing into this space. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a lot of activity, and, and, uh, and I think a lot of people are excited to make stuff rather than just write code. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it feels like a weird paradox because 
on one hand, I, I, I totally see Manji's point that, yeah, this, these, these things are dying off, but yet we're sort of surrounded by all these new companies t- telling us that our mattress or our bird feeder, you know, that they need to be smart instead of dumb. Right, right. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I agree. And it's, it's interesting. I've been trying out a couple of uh, HomeKit devices for the first time this week. So I, I got a couple of uh, HomeKit-compatible uh, outlets to plug Christmas lights into because at least one of our sets of Christmas lights is outside and the bit of cold that we've been having recently, it's not fun to go outside last thing at night and have to unplug them. And so I thought it'd be a fun way to test HomeKit. And it's, it's really great, but the two companies and companies I've never heard of before um, my guess is that the, at least one of them probably won't be around for very long and the other one will probably be acquired by somebody along, along the way somewhere and absorbed into a bigger company. And that's another thing that you know, comes to mind is that the companies that are successful are going to get snapped up by the big companies. You know, it's going to be very hard for them to go on for years and years and years being very successful without being acquired by somebody else. And so I think that's the other thing that's tough is the rare occasions where there are successful little new hardware companies, they tend to get snapped up by the big established companies. And, and it's kind of a self-fulfilling thing again, where it's only the big companies that are still around in the long term. Yeah, but even that fate isn't exactly exciting. I mean, you look at what's happened mm-hmm. to Nest, for example. Right. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking about them. Which also got acquired by Nest. I mean, it, it there's there's a struggle just in the product, not necessarily in the company that's managing it or in the size of the company that's managing it, but just just in the product of, of this new uh, you know this new age of gadgets and uh, it, it's hard to know how that's going to be resolved I mean you know we were chatting before we started recording and I was trying to think of okay what is the next big category of gadgets going to be and then it occurred to me that if I knew that I would be out talking to investors right now <laughs> so you know I, I I don't know what's next I mean it definitely feels like there has to be engineering even basic scientific accomplishments for something like that to come along where there is space for differentiation and, you know, maybe it's in medical, right. Or may, or, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we did an episode a a couple months ago on what sort of sensors we might expect, you know, out of the Apple watch too. Well, it turned out there weren't really, you know, any new ones and it's Mm -hmm. because that's really hard, but that's not to say it's going to be impossible. And so the, the gadget that can detect your blood sugar just by, you know, like sensing something on your skin that's going to be a really big deal when that comes but it's you know it's not here yet right absolutely okay well i think that's a good place to wrap up that conversation certainly an interesting subject and one i imagine we'll return to in future Uh, so let's wrap up this episode with a weekly pick and this time around it's aaron's turn so this is going to be weird because i'm going to be recommending one of the oldest blogs on the internet (laughs) and i'm not actually recommending the blog itself just because i think most of our listeners will know about it as kotke.org. That's spelled K-O-T-T-K-E.org. But what I'm actually going to recommend is, J- so Jason Kotke runs a blog, has a thing he does every year that if you're not paying attention, it can sort of go past you in your newsfeed and you don't know he's done it. But it is a really, really awesome service. Every year he puts out a holiday gift guide. And what it actually is, is he goes out and sort of curate, because every publication under the sun does a gift guide around this time of year, right? This is what you buy for this kind of a person. And uh, Jason does a really good job of curating all of those gift guides that are out there and putting them together in one place. And and uh, this year was no exception. It was really, really useful. I thought there were some fascinating suggestions on there. He covers all kinds of categories from kids to food to 
you know, to to uh, engineering, you, you name it, and he's probably got the category covered in reference there. You, it'll take you a long time to actually go through all the stuff that he's linked to, so keep that in mind when you get to it. Plus, he has it archived going into years back, and so there, this is now his fifth year of doing this, and all five years, you could go back to the first one in 2012 and still get ideas for gifts that uh, that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise. So, so my so my pick of the week is is the cocky.org holiday gift guide and we'll put a link to it on the blog on the the uh, the podcast website but uh but it is really an awesome place to turn for ideas for for gifts especially if you're struggling for a particular loved one great thanks aaron i hadn't uh hadn't been aware of that i followed cocky for quite a while but it's been a while since i've caught up with a blog and so uh I've missed that, so that's a good recommendation, and I, I need some ideas, so I'm going to be going to check that out. Um, again, as Aaron said, we'll include a link to that on the website at podcast.beyonddevices if you can't figure out it, uh, where it is for yourselves, as well as links to a lot of the other stuff that we've talked about today. And as usual, we've got a full listing of past episodes, past questions of the week, and past weekly picks all on the website on the top menu. So if you are interested in any of those things, you can go there and check it out. Uh, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. As always, we appreciate you being with us. We appreciate too if you can share the podcast, recommend it, uh, rate it in iTunes and so on and so forth to help more people become aware of it. So please take some time to do that if you would over the next week or so. And then we'll look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks.